you'll find the beginning of Colossians. We're going to read from chapter 1, verse 1, through to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Good. I'm going to ask you for your prayers. We're going to pray in a moment. We're looking at this book that um, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And it's one of the more confusing bits of the New Testament, I think. It's, um, it's not dead obvious. Let's put it like that. And I've been trying wrestling with it for the last couple of weeks, trying to make sure I understand it. Um, before I start preaching on it and have a confession to make which is I'm not sure I understand it before I start preaching on it um, I'm trying to partly because they, there's an assumption all these, all these books as with these letters they're written to little new churches we have to remember that that they're kind of like um, they're written in dynamic ongoing situations and we don't have the background to what the situation was in Colossians we, only, we can only guess and make our best uh, our best guess of what was going on from what Paul writes to them. So it's like overhearing uh, one part of a conversation. Um, and we have to put it together and then try and work out um, what Paul's saying. And what are the principles? And there are, some, there are some amazing bits of this letter which will tell us a lot about Jesus um, and, and how to be right with God as we go along the way. So there's much that will be spectacular and obvious and some that we'll have to dig a bit deeper and scratch our heads around uh, as we try and understand it. So let me pray really important that we ask God to come and, and speak through his word and, and make it real to us today. Well, Father God, I ask you uh, to come and be here with us now. We want to understand this letter. 
but we want to meet with you too. We want you to speak it to our hearts so that we understand. We want to be changed. We don't want to just come here and do something theoretical. We want life to be different at the end of it. So come, please, and, and, and speak to our hearts through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's dig in. So Christian spirituality, in other words, by spirituality here, I mean the practice of, uh, of, of Christianity. Day-to-day Christianity, I think, falls into two, into four, two kind of errors. It falls back into moralism. In other words, it's a mistake. It falls back into the mistake of thinking that Christianity is just about doing the best you can um, and hoping that you've done enough to make yourself right with God at the end of the day. It's a mistake. It's an error. There's an alternative error, though, that Christianity gets sidetracked. So somebody will come along and tell you you need this extra thing. You need this thing you haven't heard and and there's only I can tell you about it. And they're both mistakes. Because a person becomes a Christian and hopefully with great joy when they're discovered by, they're saved by grace through faith. So what we said to the kids early on, you get right with God by trusting what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot be good enough. You do not have the currency to pay him back with. You can only trust that Jesus um, has paid for you. Um, And we call that grace. It's God's grace. It's God's goodness. It's unmerited goodness. And it's taken by faith. You just just trust it. So yes, God, I'll have some of that, please. Um, This morning, that's all you have to do. Of course, you you make him Lord, too. There's no point saying, yes, I want to be right with you, and saying, but no, I don't want you to be in control of my life. So that's true too. So, but a person is, is then, they, they get that right when they become a Christian and then they get it wrong. All too often they come down to earth with a bump and they think it's just all about obeying moral rules, which it isn't. Or they float away into the stratosphere and get all a bit too airy-fairy uh, um, with non-essential things. So I think all too often Christians, they... What is concrete, what is real, solid and historical, which is Jesus, too often we, we spiritualize. And we forget that he was a, a real man, real person. And I think quite often what is spiritual, which is the Christian life, it has to be lived in, in, in the power of the spirit, has to be connected to God and, and, and empowered from above, we make too earthly. You'll find out whether this is true or not as we go through Colossians, but I think this is true to the extent that I've grasped it to date. So if, if somebody says one of these two things to you, you know they're wrong. And that's really straightforward. If somebody says to you, just try harder, just try harder, then you know it's wrong. If somebody says to you, you need this extra thing which only I can show you, emphasis on the only I, you know they're wrong. And you don't need to pay attention to those two things. So we're getting into the book of Colossians. We need a bit of background today, and today is all about introductions. And I know that introductions are always a bit bitty um, uh, uh, and a bit frustrating, but we need to get our head around what's going on. So Paul is writing to some Christians in a place called Colossae. Um, It's in Turkey. I'll show you a map in a minute. Um, It was once a great city. So in the days of Esther, if you remember the book of Esther, 
um, King Ahasuerus, um, uh, he was also called Xerxes. Um, in his day, it's written about, it was a great city. Um, it was famous for its garments. Um, they had lots of sheep, um, apparently, had fertile land, lots of sheep. Um, they had chalky water, apparently, and that's good for dyeing. So Colossian meant a certain color of red. They were just famous for clothes and garments. But over time, its neighbor, um, Laodicea, um, was, became capital of the Roman province. So when the Romans came along, they broke, um, they broke the countries up into provinces. Um, and this part of Turkey was called the Roman province of Asia. It's about 190 BC. And Laodicea became the capital. And it had another neighbor, Hierapolis, and that was a spa town, loads of temples, um, healing waters. Um, actually, it's really interesting. I'll, I invite you to go and Google these three, Colossi, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Um, and you'll see the remains of Hierapolis and the remains of, of uh, Laodicea, and they're quite interesting. And I'll show you a picture of what the remains of Colossi look like in a minute. Essentially, it's a mound. Um, it's never been excavated. So even by Paul's time, I think it was on the wane. It was kind of, it was dwindling. Um, and it was never rebuilt. There were kind of constant earthquakes in the region, and so Colossae was never rebuilt. So it's, it's just not there today. And, and it's never been excavated. Um, but if you go online, I think you can see contemporary pictures. In other words, pictures of people today um, bathing in spas around Harapolis. Because even today, they think it's... Um, they think it's healing. But if you remember your revelation and Laodicea, um, Laodicea is the place with, do you remember? Uh, the tepid water. It's neither, neither hot nor cold. So that's the, that's the background. Here, here's your map. Okay. Um, I'm kind of channel, uh, not channel, I'm trying to evoke the spirit of Ernie. Um, Ernie would want to give you a map just to tie these things down in concrete, concrete realities. This map is essentially Turkey. Um, okay, um, what it would be Turkey today. And, and over here you can see Ephesus. Um, and then over here, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and, and, and Colossae. So at the time it was on a trade route um, from Ephesus. So it was on the main road um, from Ephesus. You can also see the seven churches there, if you're careful, that were written to in Revelation over, over, over this end. Um, Okay, that's, <laughs> that's Corsi today. Okay, it looks a bit like that. Um, or actually, most of it looks like that. Okay, there's just not, uh, not a lot of it left. So if you've got, you know, you know somebody with tens of millions of pounds to spare, it'd be quite interesting to excavate Colossae and see what's there. So that's the city. We've got a little bit of an idea of my, what might be going wrong in, in their thinking. We've got an idea of the city. Um, what about the church? Well, Paul's never been to this church. He says in, in uh, Colossians 2 verse 1, he says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and those at Laodicea and for all those who've not met me personally. Paul's never been here. It's not a church that Paul has planted. At the time of writing, he's in prison in Rome. He says that again at the end. Pray for us that God may open a door for our message that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Can't be sure which imprisonment, because he was imprisoned a number of times. Most likely he's in prison um, in Rome. So the church was planted by this guy, Epaphras. And that was in our reading there. If you noticed it, his name came up. Um, Colossians 1, you learned it. What did you learn? You learned the gospel, the good news about Jesus. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, um, who's a faithful minister of Christ, and he told us about your love in the Spirit. 
And the time when this was planted is most likely, Paul, Paul spent two years in Ephesus, and there was a time when he, was, um, he had discussions in this lecture hall in, uh, in Ephesus um, daily, and he said this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So there were two years when Paul was in Ephesus, if you think back to the map, on his um, third missionary journey, and he could, they could say by the end of that time that the whole province heard the message. Well, they hadn't heard it directly from Paul. They'd heard it because people Paul had taught in those two years had gone out um, and told the good news, um, the gospel to people in their, um, in, in their own areas. And so Epaphras has heard it somewhere and he's gone back home um, and, and told it to the people in Colossae. At the time of writing, he's, he's with Paul and quite possibly he's in prison too. Um, you can look this up. You can, again, you can go back and go to Bible Gateway. You can look up Epaphras and see where he appears in the New Testament. And we'll find out that uh, at the end of Philemon, which is another letter, um, Paul says that Epaphras is my fellow prisoner. So certainly when the time Paul writes this, Epaphras is with him in Rome. He's writing to this little church in, in Colossae. And certainly, possibly at that time, possibly later, Epaphras is in prison too. The letter's going to be carried by this guy called Tychicus. That's because he doesn't swear very much. No, I knew that wasn't going to work. <laughs> it's called, I'm going to call it Tychicus. Okay. Um, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me, Paul says. Um, he's a dear brother. He's a faithful minister. and He's a, he's a fellow servant in the Lord. And he's coming with Onesimus. Our faithful and dear brother, who's one of you too. They all tell you everything that's, that's happening here. So get the picture. Paul and Epaphras in, in Rome. Maybe Epaphras can't go back because he's in prison. They're sending Tychicus with Onesimus. They're sending them, to, uh, sending them to Colossae. What this does is it ties it in with a couple of other letters. Tychicus is also the guy who carries Ephesians. Um, you can find that in the book of Ephesians. Um, so... Possibly, on the same occasion, Tychicus and Onesimus um, are going from Rome to Colossae and they're carrying um, Colossians to the Colossians, they're carrying Ephesians to the Ephesians, and they're carrying a letter to a guy called Philemon, um, who is Onesimus's owner, because Onesimus is a slave, and they're sending a letter to Philemon, um, to tell him, please, will you take Anismus back? He's become a Christian. You're a Christian, he's become a Christian. Will you please take him back? So there's a whole load of things which tie in here. You might think, why is this important? This is a bit, you know, this is background, Nick, but we're not getting very far. Does all this kind of personal and historical and geographical detail matter? Yeah, well, it's interesting. One of the things that struck me when I was... I was Preparing so the Bible never gives you the gospel in abstract form, never gives you the good news about Jesus in a neat little pamphlet or an instructional manual which goes from chapter one, chapter two. You become a Christian, you do this, do this, do this. It never does that. Don't you think that's interesting? You never get it distilled down into its basic principles. All you ever get is the gospel doing stuff. These situations are, are, are dynamic. There's something, there's something happening. There's a little church um, planted in Colossae. These guys have been going to and fro. They've been in danger. They've been, they've been telling the gospel. Uh, the church has grown up. Now it's kind of under pressure. 
you never get the, the truth of Christianity without this, without these situations. So that means we've got to understand them, but it also says something about the gospel itself, that it's always going on, it's always doing stuff. So the gospel is, is, is rooted in historical fact. It's rooted, it's rooted in the historical fact that God became a human being in the person of Jesus. And he went to a cross and he died for sin and, and, and he rose again. It's not an abstract belief system. It's not something you, you can sort of pick off the shelf. So in a sense, you could go away today and you could buy a book on Buddhism and you could practice it yourself at home. But you can't with, with the gospel. The gospel just won't let you do that, the Christian good news. It's not about an individual belief system in, in, in that sense. It's good news. It's, it's, I was struck by this too. It, it's not, it, it's like, oh, I can't explain it. But it's like some news has just come over the radio or some news has just come on the TV and that, and that news is, it, is that you can be right with God. And when good news comes, like a really, really good news story, what does, what does it do? It, it goes, it moves. Um, it goes from person to person as, as one person tells it to the next person, another person tells it to another. So you've received this kind of good news. It's not a kind of static belief system it's, um, that you can do on your own. It's good news that's come to you and you have to do something with it. First of all, you have to, you have to believe it. And the second thing you have to do is, is, as it goes from person to person, it creates churches. It's what the good news does. It's what the gospel does. It requires people and it inspires people to come together and, and to worship God. Because that's the good news. You can be right with God um, freely um, through Jesus. But it, it requires you then to become one of the people that God is doing that with. One of the people God is saving and rescuing. But it's also important to realize that these, these are accounts of... So we're, we're, I think we're often trying to kind of pull out the principles and, and write ourselves a little hand, handbook, and we read over, we ignore the names. And it's just not really important um, to us. I'm not really bothered about Tichikas or uh, what his name means. I'm not really bothered about Anisimus. Well, you forget. These are accounts of your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're real people. And you will get to meet them. If the Christian hope is true that one day there will be a new creation with all God's people in it, you'll get to meet them. If you write them out of the story, you, you demean them. And they're kind of like your brothers and sisters in Christ. I know they're, they're from a different age, but they're, they're one of God's people that, that you're going to meet. And if you write them out, then you, you kind of, you miss, you miss part of the message, which are these just ordinary people like you and me, but they've transformed into something exciting uh, by the love and by the grace of God. So that's important. So to today's passage, we're just looking at this little bit, if you want your Bibles open, really the bit, chapter one between verses three, and Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So Paul uses a kind of standard greeting form. So in, in his time, a letter, you would address it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, to the God's holy people in Colossae. That's the address. Hello from you to me. Um, and the next bit was standard. You said a thanksgiving 
you said, I, I thank the gods that you've, um, you've had a happy birthday and three children um, and that everybody is healthy in your family. Um, and so Paul is using a standard form of greeting, but, he's, but Paul's greetings are never standard. It's a standard form, but he always packs it kind of full of a punch. Um, he always kind of packs it with as much kind of um, uh, anticipatory detail as he can. So even when he says Paul, even his address, he says an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm one of the guys who's been, uh, I've seen Jesus and I've been appointed to tell you this truth. And then he says, we thank God. Um, and we notice that he's really positive about the church. He says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all God's people. And these are the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. So he's positive about this church. He can be genuinely thankful. They have faith in Jesus. They have love for each other. Uh, so the gospel has, has, has borne fruit there. Um, and these are faith and love that spring from hope um, that he says is stored up in heaven for you. But it's unusual. You would imagine that you, f you would have faith first. You, you believe in Jesus, you come to know Jesus and come to know God um, personally. Um, and out of that faith, then you would have love for, for God's people. Uh, and out of that, you would have kind of hope, hope for the future, hope for heaven. Uh, Paul doesn't say that here. It's really interesting. He says you have hope. And out of that hope, you have faith and you have love. That's a bit weird when you think about it. And we need to understand, so point two for today, hope is, hope is not a feeling. Hope is not a feeling, hope is a future. Christian hope is not a feeling, or oh, really hope something better is coming down the line. Uh, it's, not a, it's not even a hope in the sense of I really hope I'm going to heaven. The Christian hope is, is a future that God has stored up for you, of which you can be confident and which therefore changes everyday life. If it doesn't, you haven't got Christian hope. Now Paul says it's a future that's stored up in heaven or in the heavens. It doesn't really uh, matter. But what he means by that, he doesn't actually mean that the future for you is in heaven. He just means that God has this plan, he has a future, and God is in heaven and Christ is in heaven. And they have a plan and it is stored up and they are going to bring it. They're going to bring this future, this hope to pass when Jesus Christ returns. And we haven't got time to do it in detail, but if you, if you read the New Testament, the hope is not, when I die, I go to heaven and that's it. The future is that Christ will return to earth and bring all those who have died in Christ with him. So if you died and went to be with Jesus today, you would go to be with Christ in heaven. But on the alternative, if Christ returned in our lifetime, he would come down from heaven with all those who have died, bringing them back and making all the earth new. So your long-term future, it might be if you died now, you would go to heaven and be with Christ, but then when Christ returns, he will bring you back. 
to a new earth. So your future is not up there. Your future is here. Your future is here. But not a here that looks like it does now. A here that will be made new and everything wrong in it will be put right. And there's no sin in it because nobody will do what's wrong. There will be only the people who have trusted Christ in it and they will be made perfect. They'll never sin again. None of the effects of sin, no death. Nobody will die. There'll be no mourning. There'll be no pain. Be a whole new world. When you have that hope, this is not a uh, hope this is going to happen. This is the future as described to you by Christ, who is the only person who's ever gone through death and come back again. So we have reason to believe it. So Paul says you have faith and you have hope that's springing from, sorry, have faith and love, which is springing from hope. So this hope, this reality that one day Christ will return, everything will be new, heaven on earth. Um, really looking forward to it. It gives your faith a future dimension. So I wonder whether you're saying this. You're saying, I'm trusting Jesus for forgiveness now, but <laughs> what happens down the line, I don't really know. It's not, it's not Christian hope. Jesus is going to come back. You're bringing, missing a whole dimension of your faith. Jesus will come back and make everything new. That should energize your faith in Christ and... Um, and, and give it something concrete. Not just trusting Christ for forgiveness now and it's kind of like futures, well, I don't know. Your future, yeah, you do know. It gives you faith a future dimension. It gives your love for the saints an eternal dimension. Now, this is, you're going to find this shocking. Okay. You may be saying to yourself, I know I've got to love these people. Okay, because they're my Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's okay, I can, I can manage that because it's not going to be forever. Some of them are a bit weird, some of them I don't really get on with, but it's okay. Uh, it's, it's not going to be forever. And I can tell you the news, yes it will. Yes it will. Hope is that you're going to be here on earth, hold your th where, where they will be made perfect. You know, that is the good news. Um, they will be made perfect in Christ, so all their... All their annoying foibles and the things that you're really struggling to get on with now, they'll, they'll be gone, but you will be with them forever. And that gives your love, does it not, another dimension. You kind of think, oh dear, better, I, I, I'd better um, go back to Christ and repent maybe of my, my, my lack and love. Because you're going to be live, living in a, in, in a new world with them. And Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I think he's, he's using a picture language. You see, I, I, and I don't know how the Lord allocates those rooms um, and who your neighbours in the Lord's big house are going to be. Um, but you better work out loving them now because they are your future flatmates. Okay, in Christ. Finally, a bit of an introduction to the gospel. Paul says to them, you've heard the true message uh, of the gospel. They've understood the grace of God in all its truth. Um, that's what I was trying to get over to the kids. And the gospel works. It's good news that Jesus has died for us. Works because it is true. If, if it wasn't true, it, wasn't, it, it wouldn't work. So that money that I gave the kids, 
you know, it's not going to work because it's, it's not true. They can't go out and spend it in the morning. But the gospel works. It does put you right with God because it's true. It is the key real explanation to all of human, human existence. It explains why humans are the glory of the earth and also the trash of the earth. Um, because we're made in the image of God and yet we're sinners, people who have the broken relationship with God. And Paul says they've un- truly understood the gospel, so the gospel works um, when it's rightly understood. Which means going forward, you can't ignore wrestling with the gospel. Because the gospel works when you've understood it, when you've understood who really Christ is, what he really um, uh, requires of me. So you can't ignore theology and and, and doctrine going forward. Um, Some people like to say, well, I'm just a simple Christian. Well, that's fine. And the Bible is given to make wise the simple. Um, That's what the Bible's for. The gospel works, of course, ultimately because it's um, it's the grace of God. In other words, it's just, it's, at the end of the day, it's, it's good news. It's good news that's true. And it works because it's true. Well, it's good news. It's good because it's gracious. God is offering you something without cost, which is being right with him. And in contrast, as we'll see, that the Colossians are, are being pressured into believing dodgy doctrines from dodgy characters claiming spurious experiences. But we'll find that out as we go along. So, a question. Truth matters. Do you believe the gospel because it's true? Does truth matter to you? Or do you only believe it when it feels like it's true? Or do you only believe it because it it seems to work and bring you some benefits. Well, the gospel will lead to an experience of God, an experience of peace with God, um, an experience of God's fatherhood, an experience of what it's like to, to pray a prayer and, and feel like it's um, been answered. But what happens when the feelings go for a season, when God puts you through a, a time that's harder? Then you've got to believe it because it's true. Because it's true. What are you going to do then? How are you going to hold on to it? Gospel brings you benefits in, in terms of everything that matters. The most important thing, of, of course, is being right with God. But God wants to bless you. God wants to look after you. Um, God wants to care for you. But again, what happens uh, when time is hard? What happens, in fact, when truth is un- uncomfortable? just want you to think about it. I believe this because it's true. It's not always going to feel good. It's not always going to be comfortable. What will you do when life is hard? And I think it's the real, it's the real test of, it's the real of, a test of Christians. Are, am I, are they believing it because it's true? Or are they believing it because it, uh, because it, um, it buys them something? So, when Christians are under pressure, um, if, if you find that they, they're not in church rather than in church, you, you know perhaps they're believing the gospel because it, they feel they get something out of it, not because it's true. And the same if, if Christians under pressure read their Bibles less rather than, rather than more. You know they're not believing the Bible because it's true. They're, feeling, believe, they're just uh, believing it because they think it ought to. God ought to be good to them. 
So how do you hold on to truth? You just keep coming to the scriptures prayerfully. You just keep coming under the word of God. All the forms you can get it. Reading it, thinking about it, hearing it preached. So like the kids, briefly, we ask, where does the gospel, just in terms of convincing ourselves that it's true, where did you hear it from? Where does it come from? Well, the important thing about Christianity is that we hear it from God himself. Get it from the horse's mouth if I dare say that. Um, God has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He's appointed apostles um, to, to bring that word to you. And so they have written it down. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter um, have this written down. Uh, first-hand evidence of, of God on earth in, in human form. Where you get your message from is always important, isn't it? Tell your kids that when they're doing their homework. Don't you check their sources? Where did this come from? Who wrote this? You found this on the internet. Our sources, it's come from God through Christ, through uh, Paul or Peter or Matthew, and then to, to you in person from somebody. Where has it gone? Well, Paul says... Um, it's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Christian gospel has gone everywhere. It's believed by all kinds of people. That's a kind of secondary kind of evidence. What's it doing? It's transforming people. And you can find the stories of that if you want to. So at the end of our introduction, and I know this introduction and introduction is always a bit bitty, but hopefully we start to get a flavour of Colossae, and what Paul's going to say to these people, he wants them to truly understand the gospel. He wants them to have a concrete hope that's going to energize their faith and their love so that real change comes. This is good news that is true, that is transformative. And the Lord wants it to transform stains like it did Colossae so that the gospel bears fruit here like it does across the world. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that this gospel is, is, is true. And sometimes we have to pick it apart from these letters. We have to read these. We're kind of like overhearing a conversation and, and, and drawing the inferences from it. Well, we pray you'll help us do that as we look at this book of Colossians. We understand that there is good news here. And good news needs to penetrate our own hearts and minds. Good news needs to be passed on. Good news like this transforms people. And we ask that it would do that in and amongst us. In Jesus' name. Amen.